0: Hello and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels podcast, the only alcohol podcast where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill.
1: I'm Josh
2: Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And
0: today we have a special guest with us.
2: Hey guys, I'm Dylan White. (laughs) Dylan Dylan White. (laughs) (laughs) White.
0: He's here to talk to us today about uh, the history of alcohol in early Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt as well, I think. And uh, he's, he's brought along sort of his own notes, so this is going to be a little bit more improvisational probably than our other more heavily scripted dialogues, but uh, take it away, Dylan. What do, you, what do you have for us today?
3: Yeah, I'm definitely making this up completely as I go right now. <laughs> You'll fit
0: in with the rest of the episode. You and most historians. Yeah. Fantastic.
3: I mean, that's that's how science works, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, okay, so like um, uh, one of the things I'm really passionate about, fascinated by, is Mesopotamia and Egypt, and their beer is really interesting as well. Um, you know, they kind of kickstarted that whole agricultural revolution and stuff. So, you know, like we have bread and stuff because of them. Um, so yeah, um, the reason why Mesopotamian and Egyptian beer is so fascinating is because it was very important to their politics and also their faith and religion and culture and basically the entire way that they organized their society. Um,
2: so kind of like today. Exactly. Uh,
3: It's actually when researching this, I was like, I was thinking, oh, God, this is exactly like today. We just they just cut out money and just did beer. But otherwise, exactly the case. Um, But so beer really begins in that area around the same time that agriculture begins, which is around 9000 years ago. And there are some debates with archaeologists and um, brewers and stuff about what kickstarted the agricultural revolution um generally a lot of people have thought it was bread you know they discovered how to make bread from barley and now a lot of people are starting to think that well maybe it was beer that someone actually let some barley ferment for a little bit and then they really liked the results of that um and then decided well we gotta mass produce this somehow and that's kind of how it went um so by around like 950 bc we start seeing like the really like the the taking of agriculture and farming and beer brewing and stuff like really take off in the region of Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers of Tigris and Euphrates, uh, modern day Iraq. And then it takes an extra seven. Uh, it takes an extra 2000 years to get to Egypt. We start seeing that agricultural re- revolution lift off around like 7000 years ago. Um, But from there, they really got a hold of it. And there's a really fascinating book by these two anthropologists. I forget forget their names, but the book is called The 10,000-Year Explosion, which argues that alcohol had a significant effect on human evolution starting from this point. Um, One of the things they look at is the ability for the human body to process alcohol. And what they discovered is that the people that didn't have alcohol in their body the, the ones that weren't able to process alcohol well they just died out really really quickly um mm-hmm. and we've actually evolved to be a lot since this point we've evolved to be a lot more alcohol tolerant in the way that we process everything so um, That's what,
2: that's why like college students don't just die on the weekend
3: yeah <laughs> in fact like someone who drank as much as a college student like Three thousand years ago, that person would probably be dead in the night or wow. so. If mean, wow. you look at like old beer, it's around like three percent alcohol, two percent stuff like that. Well, so it's,
0: it's very hard to actually get beer with a high alcohol content without pitching yeast intentionally. So, like I think like natively beer that's brewed with uh, yeast that's natural because we didn't know about yeast as a microorganism. We talked about this in our last episode, but we mm-hmm. didn't know that yeast. We as the human race didn't know that. Yeast was actually like a crucial component in beer until well into the Middle Ages, probably. So I would imagine that's probably why ancient beers were so weak is that they were brewed with naturally occurring yeasts as opposed to pitching it for the higher alcohol
1: content. Or maybe people back then just couldn't party hard like we do.
0: Yeah, maybe they wanted a sessionable pale ale with some <laughs> like, <laughs> like a low hop character for kicking back. Uh, yeah, no, I, I.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, we all know that Tudum Common was a. F- goddamn lightweight yeah. there. So. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't
0: really hold his uh, his grain beer. <laughs> no. Yeah.
3: Not at all. That's why he died so young. He probably died of brain
0: cancer, actually, I think. Did he really? I think I read that somewhere. Interesting. That, that's, again, another completely unqualified opinion. <laughs> like, this stuff just, like, comes to me because it's all in the back of my head and I'm like, that's probably true. I should say that on the podcast. <laughs> no, he his, like, corpse is very, like, malnourished, I think, and malformed. I think he might have had, like, uh, serious health problems.
3: But uh, yeah, so um, one of the reasons why beer takes off is, and you guys probably know that um, for a lot of times, like you couldn't drink the uh, water, or couldn't trust the water. And something that's actually quite relevant to this is that one of the reasons why beer becomes really popular during when civilization is taking off is that it was actually kind of fine for hunters and gatherers to drink the water. There wasn't going to be that big of a threat from pathogens. But when you have everyone living in a centralized location and all pissing in the water, that's going to create some problems for you. And that's one of the reasons why fermentation became, you know, the godsend of civilization, Um, as well as it made them feel good. Um, So they kept on drinking it. Hmm. Um, So from there, you start to see Mesopotamia and Egypt sort of grow up and both of them seem to have a develop this sort of spiritual connection to beer um there's there's this idea of uh there's this idea of like the priests giving out beer uh beer being connected to temple priestess uh, temple priestesses prostitutes in mesopotamia um and then in egypt it's connected to the pharaoh and sort of how they uh how they uh built the pyramids um so, one of the reasons why beer was so significant in these two regions, uh, wine was developing at exactly the same time that beer was, except for wine is a lot easier to grow in Greece and not too easy to grow in Mesopotamia around this time, in Egypt around this time, uh, because the land just doesn't really work for it's it. very arid. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, it's not to say that the Mesopotamians and Egyptians didn't have beer, or didn't have wine, because they did, uh, but just beer was a heck of a lot cheaper because they didn't have to trade with uh, Greece to uh, get it, or trade with India or yeah. wherever. Um, it's
0: the same reason why people drink beer now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's cheaper than wine. <laughs> like, and because the grapes uh, that you grow, in, at least on the East Coast, are like not not good. Yeah. Right. California mm-hmm. wine is fine. I do miss
2: that California, yeah. being close to that California yeah. wine. Actually, there's
0: some really, truly fantastic
2: California wines. I shouldn't like crap on American wine that much, but yeah. I mean, people claim that Virginia wine is... Like
1: okay, people claim, claim a, a lot of it. things. Well, that I mean, okay true. is a pretty low bar. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah I, like Pennsylvania wine
2: but is but like, okay. But okay, when it's like seventy dollars a bottle, is like probably yeah.
3: not. No, not scary, at all. So. Also, I've drunk a lot of okay wines over the course <laughs> yeah. of uh, over the course of my life, and we I, shop at Trader Joe's a lot. <laughs> <so>, exactly. <yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. know that okay. Yeah, wine. we know that. They're okay the kings wine, of like. okay wine. Yeah. <laughs>
0: They're the kings of awful wine too. Like I've There's I've some... genuinely had wine at Trader Joe's that tasted like a like a tire. Pretty it much undrinkable. Like, I
3: yeah. actually had a wine from Trader Joe's that turned into vinegar in 2 days. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. 2 days? Yeah, 2 days. Jeez.
2: Yeah, the stuff I buy usually turns into like vinegar within like a week. We're kind of getting yeah. off topic. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so now, now that we've thoroughly trashed any opportunity for like a sponsorship from Trader sure. Joe's, uh, Dylan, so like you, you mentioned like a kind of spiritual connection to the beer, right?
3: Yeah. So they, they have a spiritual connection to the beer and we start seeing this in some of the earliest writings that they have. Uh, so when writing is first invented or first emerged and we start finding these like written texts in like cuneiform or hieroglyphics, Pretty much early on, the one thing that everyone is writing about is, hey, how can I trade and get some beer? Um, that seems to be like the one thing that people uh, are describing really want. And then all of a sudden we start getting these uh, religious texts, epics, what have you about the sacredness of beer. Uh, so the most famous example is probably comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, where um Gilgamesh is a story of the King Gilgamesh, and there is this uh, monster animal hero called Enkidu, and Enkidu is just one with the animals, and he, you know, frolics naked in, like, the woods and stuff, and he scares all the shepherds away, and Gilgamesh needs to do something to uh, tame this wild man, and one of the things he does is decides that the uh, temple priestess prostitute should come over and have sex with Enkidu, and... That goes on for seven days. Um, and ah, then
0: <laughs> nothing like a classic seven-day sex romp with the temple priestess. That, exactly. That boy. Good Lord. <laughs>
3: and after that, uh, she feeds Enkidu, uh, she feeds Enkidu, and she gives him beer. And the way that the epic describes it, this is from the old Babylonian version of the epic, um, Enkidu does not know of eating food, of beer to drink he has not been taught. The prostitute opened her mouth she said to Enkidu eat the food Enkidu the luster of life drink the beer as is done in this land Enkidu ate the food until he was sated of the beer he drank seven jugs his soul became free and cheerful his heart rejoiced his face glowed he became human i think this might be the earliest description of someone getting drunk there. Wow. And it's that's actually, possible. yeah, it's actually a very good description of it. He became cheerful. His face became red. And that's what
1: happens to me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's really I, interesting. Especially that they, when I drink seven jugs of
0: beer.
2: <laughs> at the end of this, they talk about that he became human. Yeah. It almost seems like drinking <laughs> beer and being drunk is like part of the human experience. Like, so it's a core part of what it means to be human.
3: That's what I find most fascinating about this as well, is that it's the, the three things that civilize him are sex food and beer and the food being i'm assuming specially prepared food the food of civilization which he's not used to um sex being you know just that companionship with a woman all that makes sense to me but it's the beer part of it that seems actually very special Mm -hmm. now it's that beer part of it that seems to almost connect him to the divine in some way uh the interesting thing about this character is that he's a wild man um and He's described as half-animal, half-man, but there's no connection between him and the gods until this special moment happens. So there's an idea right in there that beer civilizes us.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's such a contrast to the portrayal that you saw, like, especially in American Prohibition. In, like, the temperance movement yeah, and I mean, stuff? Yeah, I in that, it's, it's alcohol that, like, that dehumanizes you, that it makes you into an animal you have no control. And, like, I don't know, that i wonder if like the right answer is somewhere in between i mean maybe we're getting too philosophical for this but no like, i
0: mean that is a philosophy podcast too but like <laughs> sure we'll, we'll I, I think problem. that that you're right josh that there's i think that the prohibition movement versus how the ancient mesopotamians perceived of alcohol like reveals two different ways of viewing uh the human condition as it relates to alcohol like mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i i personally do think that like one of the greatest civilizing influences on the average man is like a woman mm-hmm. like a regular supply of food and beer like honestly not necessarily beer but like alcohol like if you are you have to be pretty well off and pretty well capable of providing for yourself before you can provision yourself with alcohol right so yep. like I th- i'd say that is the like third leg upon which the table of civilization stands like that if you're <laughs> if your are hierarchy of needs if, you know you you have sex and food and then you can also afford booze like, then you're probably good and I think that's that's what the ancient Mesopotamians
1: were Just clear, thought. in this in the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, alcohol is the uh, self fulfillment level. Yeah, that's, that's self fulfillment. So that... <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Yeah,
0: it's it's maybe I don't know if that Maslow would have. Agreed with that, but probably not.
3: Probably maybe we've just been interpreting Maslow all wrong, and he was just a really terrible alcoholic. Yeah, the, the top of the pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it
2: seems like those like those three things though still need, at the top of my still need to be in moderation though. Like, you can't necessarily if you're going to be having sex with every woman in the village or be rampantly sexual. Like that's gonna cause problems for home life. If you're eating too much, that's going to cause problems for your health. And if you're drinking too much, that's going to cause alcoholic problems, too. Can we, can we say cirrhosis of the liver
0: again? Because oh, We didn't we say didn't that have last, last time. Episode. Oh, we forgot oh. to say, <laughs> say cirrhosis of the liver last time. We shouldn't laugh about that. That's a very real problem. <laughs> but uh, Anyway, we promised our listeners something and we, we, uh, we failed. We here at the Whiskey Rebels do not recommend that you over-engage in alcohol. It's uh, But I definitely do think it's a it's a crucial element of of civilization because like you said, and and like you're like, you, you know, like you say, (laughs) you know, like every civilization has produced some form of alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So why do we keep doing that as humans? Is it because we can't really drink the water if we're all together in a place, which yes, it is because of that. Is it because it's really, it tastes good and we enjoy it? Yes. And I think maybe there is like some third point there that it, it increases social cohesion. It's the, here in D.C., you know, it's the social lubricant. Like, mm-hmm. a bunch of awkward nerds from all around the country are here, and the only thing that makes the town run is, like, gallons of vodka and, and beer and wine at these happy hours. And I think there is some component there that, like, a, a, alcohol is a not a crucial but a very powerful social enhancer.
3: Absolutely. Well, you know, the, um, the ancient Persians, when they were... When they were working out you know a treaty after a war they would generally or when they had a dispute they would generally resolve the dispute sober and then during the day and then during the night they would get drunk and open up the dispute again to solve it again (laughs) (laughs) um and that was their way of uh that was their way of maintaining that like the opposite of
2: right drunk edit sober type yeah yeah no they
3: they believe that you know what you landed on when you were drunk is probably going to be the best solution Hmm. I don't know it's, if we should always agree with them, but it's
0: certainly like the most generous solution. I think like alcohol is notorious for making people like more loose with their wallets. It does make me a yeah. lot
3: more willing to spend may, money, and yeah, maybe oh, more sure. honest. Yeah.
0: Maybe more honest too. <laughs> yeah. After I've had a
3: few beers in me, I'm like, you know what? I
0: will get the entree. <laughs> like that's that's, yeah. and I always go out, and I'm like, I'm only gonna, I'm only gonna drink beer. I'm only going to drink a few beers at this pub with my friends and I walk home with like a $70 bill for like chicken tikka masala and, you know, like pot belly, pork belly, poutine and everything. I'm like, why did I spend all that money? It's, I think it's because even like one or two beers, you realize like, oh, you know what? Who gives a crap about this material thing? Like I'm enjoying myself and I'm able to like care more in the moment about my personal well-being than the well-being of my like banking.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it kind of going back to that the, the writing of the epic of Gilgamesh. It's it makes you I think more open to sort of like kind of live in the moment and like sort of just seize the joy of life in a yeah. way. Kind of.
0: I was that that's a much better way of putting it than than what I've been saying. But yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and and to the point that we've been talking about about the whole idea of like, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't do this to excess or so um that is the that is the part that the other main character of uh, gilgamesh the king himself gilgamesh is struggling with because as a king he is screwing all the women launching all the wars to rival um tribes and drinking way too much over the course of the epic and it's actually that bonding between enkidu and gilgamesh that tempers him wow
0: Bit, that is one definitely. of the central themes of the epic of gilgamesh is gilgamesh's rampant alcoholism and yes like the problems that he gets into because of his lack of impulse control yeah so yeah oh. that,
2: that is cool that they right like the ancient writers were like nuanced enough to realize yeah like hey, yeah. this is a good thing but it can be a bad thing. well
0: people i'm sure people have been getting wasted since like <laughs> 9000 bc right. so like it's and it's it, is, it can be unpleasant when you're like with someone who's extremely drunk and you're like not
2: well, let me tell you drunk. something about <laughs> yeah, exactly, this and yeah. stuff yeah that
0: you know I think there's there's probably an easy moral to be to be learned is like, hey, you never want to be the drunkest person in the room ever.
3: Yeah so. um, beer also comes back into Gilgamesh because uh, when Gilgamesh um, after Gilgamesh and Enkidu have all their adventures, and as you said, those adventures are started by Gilgamesh being a reckless, drunken <laughs> king saying, "I want to kill this monster. Yeah. I want to turn down that woman for marriage. Yeah. I want to fight this bull of heaven here. Uh, after all of that goes on, which finally leads to the death of Enkidu, uh, Gilgamesh has this massive sort of um, sort of identity crisis. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose you could say like an existential crisis uh, where he decides, I just don't want to die. Um, death is not something I want to do. And so he leaves his kingdom and goes on this journey and walks naked with a lion pelt around him. Um, into the uh, into the realm of the divine. you know he chases down, he, he goes down the tunnel that the sun comes up in to get to this divine realm, which is a tavern. Um, and uh,
0: heaven is just a bar, everyone. that's it. we've solved it. Exactly. <laughs> heaven
3: is, is, is the bar from Cheers. <laughs> like, everyone's there. <laughs> everyone knows your name. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the, um, the tavern keep, keeper, her name is uh, Siduri. Uh, she's the one who actually gives Gilgamesh the advice of, look, Gilgamesh, you're searching for an answer to death. You you want to live forever. Guess what? That's never going to happen. You're never going to defeat, uh, defeat death. You have to accept life as it is right here. Have a beer. And uh, that's sort of... Uh, That's, that's sort of, she's the voice of wisdom in this epic before he meets the one man who does live forever, who then tells him exactly the same thing.
2: Kind of like, memento mori, might as well drink a beer.
3: Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of funny that that's like still what we say to one another, like to, to comfort one another. Like people in like times of grief, like, I just want to go to the bar and have a drink. Yeah. And my friends are like, you know what, man, like nobody lives forever. Nobody's here on purpose. Everybody dies. I mean, that's like, like that's been like (laughs) Like, my
1: default, like response. Like if I, if somebody that I'm friends with is like having a difficult time, I'll say, okay, Hey, I'll take you out for a drink.
3: yeah. Yeah. It's just, no, because like that, that like when you have that friend who's having a difficult time, usually they don't want to talk about it mm. until they have that like first beer, and then at that point, I know that that's what happened to me when I saw the red wedding. Is uh, I just <laughs> I just didn't want to talk to anyone. And, uh, the Lannister send their regards. Yeah. Um, so Gilgamesh isn't the only um, Gilgamesh isn't the only time that beer is mentioned in ancient Sumer in a sort of mythical text or something like that. Uh, they actually had a goddess named uh Ninkashi, who was the goddess of beer and brewing um and, oh by the way um something before i go into Ninkasi, something that you might have noticed uh from this uh be it Nikashi being the uh um the divine tavern woman or the temple prostitute you might have noticed that the people that offer beer are always women in ancient samaria uh, that's actually mm-hmm. because. Beer, uh, brewing beer was considered uh, a was considered a woman's job in ancient hmm. Samaria, um, and also in ancient Egypt as well. Uh, both of these were considered, you know, proper roles that women can have and hold in society um, if they didn't want to be housewives or prostitutes or temple priestesses or you know, all that sort of thing. And actually, a lot of women were able to make a lot of money um, doing this, or well, not money in the way that we have money, but you know, they were able to trade beer for a lot of uh, a lot of things they made a lot of beer and beer was money exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> actually in, in a sense
0: they were almost like the well, I guess a banker yeah, they really were the original word. bankers
2: yeah
3: yeah um yeah Brewers were actually the original bankers um, <laughs> there um, but yeah so Ninkashi was the uh, was the goddess of beer and there's actually a hymn to her from around um, 1800 BC uh, which we think is actually the oldest Beer recipe that we have in this uh, in this hymn. Um, it goes, uh, and I'm only going to quote a little bit of it. Uh, but it begins. No, oh, I can sing it if you want me to. <laughs> Born of the flowing water, tenderly cared for the sag This is exactly how it must have sounded. Oh, absolutely. In, in, in English, um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. I... like a lot
2: more
3: like ritual wailing and everything too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know it goes into how gentle, how caring she is, how she uh, deals with the barley in just the most caring way, how she does with the water, and it gets to oh her father is uh, her father is Enki, who is one of the main um, main gods of ancient Sumer, um, and uh, her mother is uh, Ninti, the queen of the sacred lake. Um, and then it repeats that a lot in the poem. Um, and then it tells you about like all the aromatics, uh, everything that you would mix together to brew the beer. And particularly, I would like to get to the end of this poem, uh, which I think is very beautiful at the end. It goes,, uh, when you pour out the filtered beer from the collector vat, it is like the onrush of the Tigris and Euphrates, Ninkashi You are the one who pours out the filtered beer from the collector vat. It is like the onrush of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is not just beer. These are the holy rivers, the sacred rivers that bring life to Mesopotamia. And this is the way that they looked at this goddess, and this is the way that they looked at beer, was the life.
0: Beer certainly (laughs) gives me life. (laughs) (laughs) I might be uh, pretty sympathetic to the ancient Mesopotamian view of beer uh my favorite part of this poem this is kind of a non sequitur. my favorite part of this poem you brought here for us dylan is uh this line the noble dogs keep away even the potentates you are the one who soaks the malt in the jar <laughs> the waves rise the waves fall <laughs> this, is, this poem is great and i want this to be on my gravestone but, uh, <laughs> i do love
1: the idea of like dogs defending your uh your beer, your beer
3: I mean, that just seems like the most human thing possible. If, if I had to think of what humanity represents, it is our domesticated best friends are defending our a beer from us yeah. for us.
0: We've carved this life for ourselves from the wild, unyielding you know cruelty of nature and like our two greatest accomplishments, dogs and beer <laughs> actually this
3: this goes into my own personal philosophy, which is that the greatest things we ever did were dogs, beer, writing, in that order. Yeah. Boy. Um, I
1: can't argue with that.
2: Like, yeah. Which... I mean, I think most anthropologists would probably agree with
0: that, too. <laughs> I think, well, and, and here's the thing, though. I think that that's, that hierarchy is
2: correct, because I don't think we ever would have gotten to language without dogs or yeah. beer. Yeah. I I mean, mean, like, a lot of anthropologists very, would say that. They I, think I think that's yeah. true. And I mean, it follows logically that you need, like, there's, I've read all sorts of anthropological accounts how you don't have property rights without dogs because you couldn't, like, you just couldn't, like, you couldn't mark out the land, you couldn't do fences, but dogs knew where your property lines were. And you, as, as early, like, even as recently as, like, England in the Middle Ages, they used dogs for property rights, yeah. which Really is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, a lot of the common law in England was developed around how dogs could defend your property. Oh, my God. And so then you have your property lines, right? So you can do property, so then you can grow grain that's yours and you can make beer and sell the beer, and then you can develop writing. I mean, they probably didn't have property rights in the same way we do it now in I, Egypt yeah, and I mean, in Mesopotamia. But I think you even, know, there's even some sort of logical I would
3: thing. I would just love if someone brought that legal claim to a court of law today.
2: My <laughs> dog peed like... on it, so it's mine. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think I'm going to take this
1: opportunity to announce that I'm uh, quitting my job and going to law school to study dog law. <laughs> oh, I'm really more of an expert in bird <laughs> <law>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, that's it's a second always sunny reference in a day. Uh,
1: that's a good show.
0: Even more rudimentary though than than like the property law thing, which is fascinating. Um, I think like some anthropologists would suggest, one of the main reasons we're capable of expressing empathy as a species is because of dogs. Like our those humans who were most capable of you know empathizing with another non-human furry creature, uh, they were the ones that were able to domesticate dogs and they're. Survival benefit from that was huge, of course. So you know, as a as a companion to defend you from other wild predators and also help you hunt down food, uh, dogs would have been like incredibly valuable. And that's probably why people are able to like express empathy today. I mean, this obviously this is like a completely ad hoc theory, but like I, I to me it makes sense because.
2: I mean, most evolutionary psychology is kind
0: of out yeah out, but yeah. it still makes sense I, I, that's like the, the co-evolutionary theory of humanity that, that canine and human evolution uh, occurred sort of is they're essentially intertwined as a species um
1: uh, you know we were talking before about um beer and its use as currency in one of these yeah. other societies
3: yeah um so it, it wasn't the only currency mm-hmm. in society I, I should make it clear mm-hmm. that I, I i'm not in any way claiming that People just carried around jugs of beer and exchanged it for sheep or whatever. Although, actually, yeah, that happened a lot. Um, <laughs> and, but you know, it was one of the it was one of the main consistent uh, ways that you could pay for something was either through barley or through um, or through beer. And what's actually interesting is that there were some weird uh, there was some weird conversions that they would do uh, based off of like value if it's in just barley or if it's in beer as well. And that's actually enshrined in uh, Hammurabi's Code of Laws. So, uh, you know, Hammurabi's Law Code, um, as you know, is like one of the great examples of consistency of law applied throughout an empire enshrined so that everyone can understand the law. This is coming from the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And this is one of the great things that Hammurabi does well laws um 108 through 111 are entirely uh enshrined to how to manage a tavern and um what is the appropriate um what is the appropriate amount of beer you know those sorts of things um so the the one that i think is prevalent to that uh currency discussion is law 108 which reads uh if a tavern keeper does not accept grain according to the gross weight in payment of drink, but takes the money, and the price of the drink is less than that of the grain, she shall be convicted and drowned in the water.
0: Yeah, they really didn't mess around with the uh, Hammurabi, <laughs> Code of Hammurabi. I mean, it's, it's a lot of chopping of hands and drowning in rivers. Yeah. T- but, tough on crime. Yeah, let's yeah, yeah. say. And it worked for Hammurabi. <laughs> Uh, maybe Jeff Sessions is on to something. Uh, no, the, no, 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 we're, we're really not going to Jeff going. Sessions' idea of, of criminal punishment. Um, yeah. But that's fascinating. You yeah. Know, the, uh, I, I think, well, so in this, the, the use of alcohols as a means of exchange, mm-hmm. As we talked about in our first episode, it was even common even like into the modern era. And by yeah. modern, I mean like 1800s. Like,
1: yeah, we we talked about uh, at the time how in a lot of Appalachia, uh, whiskey was used as sort of a means of exchange, which much in the same way, just because it was such like a mountainous area that in sort of transporting like their grains, they could just distill it to whiskey, and it was mm-hmm. much more transportable. Yeah,
0: and that most day laborers were paid in whiskey. And when Alexander Hamilton passed his whiskey tax, it screwed over those people because it was basically an income tax. And so they rebelled. Uh, But that kind of use of alcohol as a means of exchange because of its portability and its drinkability. (laughs) uh, And, you know, the fact that it's the water of life, basically, uh, and therefore maintains a great not, I won't say intrinsic value because I'm not a Marxist, but because it maintains a high subjective value in, in in terms of what other people would be willing to trade you for it, makes it a very, I think, very useful natural means of exchange.
3: Exactly. And this actually made Hammurabi maybe a bit paranoid about its power mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh, one thing I should go back on, when, when it mentions that the tavern keeper, the... The tavern keeper who cheats by doing that shall be drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, it says drowned in the water. It actually meant drowned in her own beer. Wow, um, shoot. Oh, wow. So <laughs> there, there there, was wow. a particular form of poetic justice to Hammurabi's <laughs> wow. uh, code. So of I guess
2: they're, they're, hand, they're hand for hand, eye for eye. For eye. eye for an, an eye. eye. He really beer. went yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah they weren't they were kidding yeah.
3: Exactly. Wow. Um but yeah, Hammurabi was actually kind of worried about the idea of like taverns and beer halls and stuff where people are drinking and socializing, um, because he was worried about ideas being exchanged in these sorts of um, in these sorts of environments that he didn't like. So, um, Law One Hundred Nine of Hammurabi's uh, Code is. If conspirators meet in a house of the tavern keeper and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the tavern keeper shall be put to death.
1: Hmm. I mean, it's not a totally unfounded fear. I mean, the American Revolution was like largely plotted and, plans and planned in taverns. Yeah, a...
3: definitely. Um, and then shady things went on with like Christopher Marlowe's death in the tavern as well. Hmm. And, uh um, oh, that's another situation that we should get in on is uh, whether Christopher Marlowe was a spy and whether he, you know, he, you know, he died in a bar when he was stabbed in the eye. But unrelated. Yeah,
0: but that's like that makes sense though if you're a ruler, as Hammurabi was, who ruled with an iron fist, because that's how every ruler ruled and kind of still how every ruler rules. Uh, you know, what, yeah. the state being the monopoly on force and everything. But that's. kind of makes sense to disincentivize people from allowing their taverns to be homes of (laughs) sedition and and rebellious ideas because hey if the king catches wind of the fact that people are plotting in your tavern and he doesn't get them he's going to get you So Mm -hmm. that's you know were I a Mesopotamian
3: dictator I would passed such a law. Was <laughs> well, it's also interesting because it also kind of suggests the fact that you have control over your own property mm-hmm. in in this way as well. Is that like you are yeah. the tavern keeper is the one ultimately held responsible if people are conspiring within her uh, tavern. Yeah, there.
0: You're supposed to kick out those yeah, hairdos. yeah. They're
3: they're they're unwanted. You need to send them straight to the court there. Yeah, yeah. Um, now he, he wasn't yeah. You know, uh, those two laws seemed very. Harsh to the tavern keeper, uh, but he also dictated out like how much how much grain the tavern keeper is um, allowed to have, um, and it's through an interesting fraction of units. Uh, he says if a innkeeper furnishes um, sixty units um, to drink, she shall receive fifty units of grain for the harvest. Um, I'm not quite sure how those conversions bear out, but it's interesting to see the fact that he's trying to trying massively to regulate this. Um
0: boy, even the Babylonians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is sort of the, one of the oldest human tendencies, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. <laughs> to regulate things.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like like so, to try to be in control.
1: So if I'm understanding that basically it was kind of try to put a keep a cap on like how much they could serve, is that effectively what that was? I
3: think so. Yeah. Um it it was to have a cap on that, but then also I, th- I, I would assume that that sort of fraction of 50 units of grain, 60 units of drink mm-hmm. is kind of an idea of like, maybe if it's, um, maybe if it's like 120 units of drink, then they would get like 100 right. units of grain. I'm not quite sure how that was applied in practice. Mm. Um, and I, I, i would expect that like different tavern keepers would have like you know different arrangements and stuff considering like how big their tavern was or sort of things like that but but yeah it does seem like he was very concerned about regulating both alcohol and then also what was going on in uh in the places that served alcohol as well yeah
0: yeah i I, they made us read the code of hammurabi and Grade school, but I, I didn't realize it had so many like beer related laws. In
3: it. To be fair, it does have a lot of laws in it. Yeah, it's, These it's are huge. like yeah, five they of a, They didn't
0: make us read the whole thing, they just made us read the
3: like a few sections of it. Like, yeah, like eye for an eye. Yeah, that like sort of how we like to punish thieves yeah. by chopping out their hands and that kind yeah.
0: of thing. Oh my, wow, that seems so harsh in comparison to how we punish thieves by throwing them in jail for 30 years. <laughs> you know, like, so, you know lose yeah. a hand or 30 years of your freaking life I mean that's a question
1: though how many years of your life is your hand worth?
0: I, I mean five <laughs> no, I don't, I, I, you really can't put a price on dismemberment I think but at the same point like you know it, that was the illustration was I mean like, you
3: also can't really put a price on time though that's true so, exactly yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: that, and that was the illustration like oh look how much more lenient our laws are in comparison mm-hmm. to these savage Babylonians but like
3: I think I'd give up my hand for five years Second hand, I'd have to think about yeah. hard.
0: If like. I, I would give, I would give up my hand for ten. I would keep a hand. Definitely in 10, for five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it, the if they were like, we'll put you in prison for ten freaking years, or we'll chop off your hand. I'd be like, take the hand, man. Like, so in, in
3: addition, so in addition to the laws about how to regulate a tavern, uh, part of the laws that Hammurabi includes about taverns and beer drinking is, I think, one of the first examples of laws. For temperance in in terms of relating it to religion um rule 110 of the code of hammurabi says if a sister of a god opens a tavern or enters a tavern to drink then this woman shall be burned to death
0: what <laughs>
3: yeah <laughs> a sister of a god <laughs> so, yes what of
2: a sister of a god been that
3: so a sister of God would have been like a temple priestess uh, uh, yeah. of okay. some sort. Yeah. So this seems like the, uh, the, the beginning of that sort of whole separation of religion from uh, religion from alcohol. Yeah, and that's been a major
2: theme throughout our discussions, too, is you have the Whiskey Rebellion had some religious context, probably, and the Prohibition certainly did. And the Reinhardt's Reinhardt's even the Rhineheads yeah. kaboot yeah. had some sort awesome, of right. anti-pagan uh, at what point did religious conservatism
0: you know when when people were worshiping beer goddesses at what point did they start to say oh actually religion and alcohol don't get along so well yeah that's maybe it was around the time of Hammurabi yeah
3: I think you can blame Hammurabi for that one yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it's coming back around like you know modern uh, modern churches are like let's have uh, an event at the bar get all the young folks in and I think that's I think that's a positive development actually but yeah. uh, you know. That is, the, the, that is another sort of thread that we've encountered in all of these discussions is that typically there's an element of religious conservatism that wants to uh, isolate alcohol from the human experience.
3: I, I think that's interesting.
1: But yeah, no, so like, the Mesopotamia era wasn't the only area where beer was super influential. And no,
3: no. And this, uh, this probably brings us to the Egyptians mm-hmm. uh, who were also – really fascinating in this, and they had their own uh, they had their own mythology to beer as well. They had their own sort of uh, um, They had their own sort of ideas as like offerings to deities and stuff like that Um, So beer pops up a lot in ancient Egyptian texts. It seems to be sort of a sacred beverage to them Um, and there's numerous sort of scriptures in um, the um, pyramid text, the coffin text, the book of the dead um, that describe a form of like what you would consider like a holy sacrament of beer, like to bring it to like a modern equivalent. Um, so for example, there's this, uh, this, this quote from the uh, pyramid text that says, uh, what people receive when they have been buried, their thousands of bread and their thousands of beer, it is from the offering table of the foremost of Westerners. Uh, Westerners in this capacity means uh, people have already died in Egyptian religion. Um, that means those are the people that are going with Ra, who is the setting sun in the west.
2: Uh, so they're not uh, offering to like Americans. They're not yeah, offering they're to Americans to the foremost or, of Westerners. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it kind of means something completely different outside of the Egyptian religious context, which personally I think we should bring back. Um, I actually like that. Yeah. It's
1: just- you kind of just say, like, oh, no, he, he went west. Mm. I, I like that, actually. Yeah.
3: Um, and so, just like in Sumeria, uh, beer is connected to a few uh, deities in Egypt. Um, the goddess Hathor, um, and uh, one whose name I really feel uncomfortable pronouncing, uh, uh, Tenet, Tenenet? Um, yeah. yeah, we'll go Tenet. with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, were Kind of considered like the goddesses of beer, they'd be the um Egyptian counterpart to uh Ninkashi, the Sumerian goddess. Um, but then the one who in mythology brought beer to uh to humans to the ancient Egyptians uh was Osiris, uh, the uh, god of the dead. You were talking about Tejeninet, <laughs> yeah, Tejeninet, um, to Jen and then uh, so she seems to be uh, she seems to be um, more of a minor goddess, but like very close to uh, a v- very close to the equivalent Sumerian goddess. Um, she was in charge of brewing and beer and bringing it to uh, um, bring it to the masses. Hathor, in this capacity, is kind of of a goddess of the family as well. So there's an idea of when uh, when she comes in with like the idea of beer it's you know to be shared amongst like those who you care about uh, in a way and um, then you get this sort of idea that beer is a family um, is is a family thing so you would start drinking beer when you're around two um, and you know from that point on this is like a sort of daily occurrence of uh, consuming uh, of consuming beer. At least that's what we think. The archaeology is a little bit iffy on this part. Um, but I just love the idea of um, two-year-old Egyptians running around, um,
2: you know. Cracking open a cold
3: one. Cracking open <laughs> a cold one. Yeah, they got let that, like, Milwaukee light and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was before we discovered... National bohemian. <laughs> before, yeah. we,
2: before we discovered the uh, detrimental effects of alcohol on young minds. But. Well,
3: it's... In, well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. So beer was um, oftentimes prescribed for a lot of uh, medical ailments. Um, it was often used for uh, constipation, coughs. Uh, there is one text that describes a beer enema. I don't know what for, but, you know, it was good. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it did the trick for whatever it was for, but, you know, I mean, I, I hope for <laughs> the sake of whoever that was that uh, they lived a good long life after that. <laughs> oh, um but uh then there's some other aspects of ancient egyptian beer which is quite shocking and fascinating um so around the 1980s there was an archaeological expedition around the area of egypt and nubia uh, which unearthed a lot of a lot of bones a lot of bodies and within the bones they found a tremendous amount of uh tetracycline and tetracycline is an antibiotic that we discovered in the nineteen forties. Um, so this is literally like you just dug up an ancient Egyptian tomb, and the dude has a radio in it. Um, it, it is of that sort of like quality of just like this does not make sense in any way whatsoever. Um, ancient aliens? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah.
1: no, I, I think it's kind of an interesting like modern-ish parallel. Um, I know a lot of liquor was used in a lot of these uh, medicines and, and sort of snake oil yeah. brews. Um, probably, probably less effective than the beer was. It seems like it seems like, you know, back then it maybe worked. With these ancient yeah, it had Egyptians, a in it then, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, whereas yeah. you know this is you know snake oil. Yeah. This is the the origin of like, snake oil. Hey, <laughs> I mean like
3: don't badmouth snake oil. It's how we got Coca Cola. So. <laughs> There's <is none>. that.
0: There <laughs> Yeah. Uh, or, like, Winston Churchill's doctor, like, sent, uh, we talked about this in the Prohibition episode, like, he's, he, you can't give him any less than, like, two, what was it, like,
3: two two pounds of uh, whiskey a day or something?
0: He know. he had
1: a uh, pr- prescription for whiskey, yeah. 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 Nah, I don't
3: know. Like, don't an actual prescription whiskey. for whiskey. Yeah, Prescription yeah. from a doctor,
1: yeah. yes. Because was... he was, you know, when he was in the U.S. Um, God, during Prohibition. Yeah. So he had to, you know, work, have a workaround. Yeah you know that's when we did
3: medicine right Yeah, it's like back in the days when you could go into a pharmacy and just pick up laudanum <laughs> as if that wasn't an issue at all yeah. <laughs> it'll make you feel better yeah that's
0: that's for sure yeah, good old yeah. when they sold meth over the counter as a uh, as a pick-me-up yeah ah, put yeah cocaine in the drinks
3: in coca-cola yeah,
0: yeah. everybody knows there was cocaine in as in it's, the name, yeah, it's it is. They never took it, it. Is, yeah.
3: Guys, how did we go wrong?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they don't have real coke in the Coca Cola anymore. What is this? I long for the good old days when you could buy opium in a store. <laughs> uh,
2: now that we've uh, successfully de- derailed this conversation, yeah.
3: yeah uh, so to bring it back, um, the uh, so when when these bodies were discovered, then they ran the tests and found tetracycline. Uh, pretty much everyone immediately was like, well, you screwed up somehow. Um, there's, uh, there's no possible way that tetracycline is in this. And they ran the test multiple times, and they consistently found tetracycline, uh, which made them think, okay, well, you know, what part of their diet could possibly have brought them tetracycline? Because it wasn't just that they had, like, a little amount of tetracycline. It was literally in their bones wow. that they found it. Um. So it, it lasted that long, and yeah. And so they must have been. They must have had a lot of tetracycline in their diet, um, for this to uh for this to happen, and the archaeologists actually tested a lot. Went back and tested a lot of ancient Egyptian recipes and just couldn't find the one that would produce tetracycline until they started brewing the beer, and it was actually in the beer that they found uh um that they found a lot of like the naturally occurring tetracycline. <gasps> Um, It's a lot to do with the minerals that were in that area when they were, you know, growing the barley and everything like that.
2: So it was was in the ingredients themselves? It was in the ingredients
3: ingredients. themselves. Um, And there was something that happened. uh, There was some sort of chemical process that happened uh, when they were brewing the beer. From It wasn't from the barley. It was from something else that they added to it. Um, But there's some sort of chemical process that brought, like, the tetracycline out of it. And they were just drinking that day after day after day and certainly i would assume that they knew that there was something about that you know they they definitely knew that there were some health reasons why this is working um but you know it was the same way as like the egyptians used to treat um treat open wounds by rubbing moldy bread on it um yeah Mm uh they they obviously had no concept of penicillin or tetracycline but there was just something you know i i assume that you know enough experimentation had led them to believe oh no this works well we don't know why but this this is, a, this is a good way to yeah. uh, go about this.
0: Actually, there's an ironic connection there with, with beer as well, because the Vikings in the 1500s, like we mentioned before, they didn't really know what yeast was, but they had these specific logs that they would stir their cauldrons of beer with, which contained the, you know, the microbial yeast colonies between batches. And mm-hmm. they knew that if they stirred the beer... With the magic beer stick, it would turn into beer. And if they didn't stir it with the beer stick, it would never become beer. And they didn't know why, but that's they knew crazy. that you, they had to use the beer log to get the beer. And that's, you know, there there's a lot of things like that where you don't understand why it works until much, much later.
3: Right. But it works. But <laughs> it works.
0: <laughs> but it works. And that's, that's fascinating that the ancient Egyptians had access to, like, what we would consider modern antibiotics, Basically, just because their beer had special minerals in it. Yeah, that's really fascinating.
3: Um, and so this actually probably kept them alive um, and sustained a lot better than you know they would have been if they had. You know, this is why. Why when I say that like beer has literally saved the world, it literally has saved the world. We wouldn't have. Uh, we wouldn't have anything close. I think that we wouldn't have anything close. To the civilizations that we have and have seen move past if not for if not for beer and you know we definitely see this within like the whiskey rebellion we see this in like prohibition and how it's um created some horrible things in society um course <coughs> <coarse> light
1: <coughs> did course light come from prohibition well, yeah i mean the, well they were the, one of the few breweries that survived prohibition because they were able to go uh, in, in their case they actually went to ceramics okay um, and then you know once prohibition was lifted they were able to go back into business when you said beer. they went to ceramics you mean like they manufactured ceramics they yes. still manufacture
0: ceramics, and they're still yeah. like yeah. the largest of course, manufacturer the company of company ceramics still makes a, a crap ton of ceramics it's yeah. crazy yeah. wow but we we would say that the reason why America's beer tastes got so bad is because prohibition like
1: it, it knocked out a, knocked lot, out small, a lot of small, smaller breweries. Yeah, yeah, the that's ones probably that for to sort of transition to something else in the meantime.
0: Yeah, yeah. and then all was left was the big cost. All that was left were the big cost-cutting, you know, big players.
1: Oh, that's so depressing. It is really Which sad. Which is why
0: yeah. Yingling is still
2: like, like the best of the bad beers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, yay. Yingling's not a bad beer. You take that back. <laughs> that's my daddy's beer. <laughs> it's, Actually, like, it's like. It's top tier, low tier beer. <laughs> it's, that's very true. Yeah. All, I, I love Yingling. I, love I just
3: suddenly got like a historical reason why
1: Budweiser is awful. And that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's
0: yeah,
1: why. yeah. See, it's really interesting that like the ancient Egyptians had like, you know, one of the earliest forms of antibiotics, I guess, and didn't even realize it. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think when we think of Egypt, the biggest thing that we think of is the pyramids, obviously. Absolutely. Um, And beer had a role in that, yeah?
3: Yeah, yeah, beer uh, definitely did. So um, I think enough people now know that the pyramids weren't built by slaves, um, as the the Bible might uh, claim, Um, but that the people who built the pyramids actually, you know, were workers that... You know had their own had their own land had their own uh had their own food and stuff like that and they were actually paid for uh good work and encouraged to uh build the uh pyramids or whatever have you uh through the pharaoh providing them with beer um if you did good work you would get around approximately a gallon of beer a day um and you could just go through that distribute that to yourself and your family um, and that seemed to be a pretty good unifying force through most of the Egyptian Empire. Would that um, beer
2: been used for drinking or currency or both?
3: Uh, kind of both. Whatever you really wanted to uh, use it for. I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's it's made for drinking, and uh, I think as we've covered, there were a tremendous amount of nutritional benefits to drinking this beer as well. Um, but you could absolutely use it for currency if you have, because I mean. Personally, I don't know anyone who drinks a gallon of beer a day. <laughs> I hope uh, I don't.
2: They're
0: looking at me. Yeah, for those of you who can't uh, see, I don't drink that much. No, that. Don't no, don't. I barely yeah. drink a liter of beer a day. I, <laughs> most days I, I will drink like one or two. Yeah. Cans of beer, maybe.
3: So I I assume that the gallon of beer was supposed to be either divided up between you and your your kids and family. You know, like the two-year-olds that just can't quite work the pyramid yet.
2: Um, (laughs) (laughs) No child labor laws back then. (laughs) Yeah,
3: I mean, like, you know, I I would expect the two-year-old to, like, you know, pull his weight as soon as he could, but two still seems a little bit young for uh, that sort of stuff.
0: They probably would have the children, like, doing repairs on clothing. I'm sure they did some and such.
3: Yeah, um, But yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of how uh, beer built the pyramids um, I think it became a staple of that sort of currency and stuff Long after the pyramids stopped, uh, stopped being built And long after they transitioned to you know, the uh, Valley of Kings And different burial practices um, But that is a good way of motivating your workforce to this day Is to provide beer whenever you uh, do a good job
0: this is really uh, fascinating when we think about the sort of cultural implications of alcohol being from basically the very start and this is something a theme that we've we've sort of had from the beginning that alcohol has had a big impact on basically every human's felt experience yeah lived experience down all through history and you know from the people who were building the pyramids to the people who were, you know, writing the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, to yeah. the people who were having their, their hands chopped off <laughs> in the time of Hammurabi. You know, these are some of the earliest recorded... Uh, these are the earliest recorded human, human experiences, and they all have alcohol in them to some yeah. degree. And, uh, you know, I think it's fascinating that how deeply entwined that substance is with what we consider to be a, a well-lived life, I—I um, I don't know. Anybody have any other thoughts, or do we want to end on that note? <laughs> like booze is good and booze is and, great. I mean, I can't it's, dispute a big it. Part of I human
3: mean, humanness. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that's been. I think that's our show for today. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Oh, yeah. you're welcome. Um, I mean, I think that we covered uh, beer, dogs, and writing, yeah. which is <laughs> yeah, kind of the. Uh, all that you need in life. That
0: that you you in life. life. Yeah. Absolutely. A good book, a good dog, and a good Doppelbock.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we are consistent today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, if you enjoyed the show, feel free to subscribe and share us. Uh, you can like us on Facebook as uh, The Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. This has been The Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm
0: Drew Brackville. And I'm John Nelson.
1: Enjoy our podcast responsibly.